Wading into youth ministry can be overwhelming. It's more overwhelming if you don't have someone to lean on and learn from. The Rooted Mentorship Program was created for new youth pastors in precisely this situation. The Rooted Mentorship Program allows you to spend 18 months alongside a group of your peers learning from a veteran mentor who will help you develop as a youth pastor and grow in your personal walk with the Lord. You don't need to wade through the challenges of ministry alone. We are here for you. Learn more by visiting rootedministry.com mentorship. Welcome to the Rooted Conference Podcast. This podcast features main talks and workshops from Rooted's annual conferences. Find more information about our annual conference at rootedministry.com. This talk was recorded at the Rooted 2022 conference in Kansas City. All right, well, thanks for uh, making your way down here and... There's a buffet of options I was looking, and there are some breakouts right now that I wish I could be at, so I feel honored that you would carve out your time and and emphasize this one and be here. Um, I hope they were doing great with that for about 30 seconds. I hope that music goes off. Um, We're here to talk about discipling doubters, which um, is... You can go any number of ways with this. There's a, there's a lot of things we could say about doubt. We could get into the apologetic side of things. We could, um, we could dive deep on discipleship. We could go any number of directions. Um, I want to try to kind of merge some of those together. But what I want to start with is explaining why this is particularly near and dear to my heart, aside from just in ministry this matters. Um, I grew up as a pastor's kid. Um, my dad is John Piper. Um, I suspect some of you figured that out or were suspicious because I have a weird biblical first name and share a last name with him. So that's me. Um, Which means that I grew up in a home that very faithfully exemplified Christ and taught me the Bible. Um, My parents... My parents were great. They did a wonderful job with those things. You know, all of us have things about our parents we wish were different. That's... My parents didn't fail me in any way, shape, or form on that front. I I was just... Um, wrapped up in scripture from birth, really. And none of which uh, put me in a position as I grew, uh, middle school, high school, etc., to have a genuinely meaningful, joyful relationship with God. Uh, there was, there, there was a, an enormous amount of knowledge and a lack of spiritual vibrance, a lack of meaningful identity in Christ meaningful, what, what I've come to kind of em- embrace the verbiage of reality with God, something that I learned from uh, Ray Ortland, who's the founding pastor at the church where I serve. He, that's what he talks about. And it's because it's not just relationship and it's not just understanding. It's does God shape the reality of your world? Does God's word shape the reality of your world, your perspective, your joy, your passion, your foundation? And I didn't have that. Um, And so my struggles with doubt were less challenging. I wasn't saying, how do we know the Bible is true? As much as it was, there was just this stuff, there was was a gap between what I knew and mentally assented to and what shaped my life. And so doubt for me took more the form of silent insecurity, 
not being, like, I was not comfortable with the idea of um, confession and uh, being openly honest about my failings and weaknesses because that didn't seem safe. So my doubts took the shape of, of sort of silent hypocrisy, insecurity, not questioning the facts of who God was, but not living in the reality of who God was either. Now, I'm sure in the ministries that y'all serve in or with your own children, there's a, there's a different form of doubting, which is very much like shake your fist at God or challenge everything, the sort of overt skeptic. Um, I'm related to some of those. I'm friends with some of those. Um, but that wasn't my story. So I had a framework much more than a relationship, and I had facts more than I had reality with God. And it wasn't until I sort of hit, I didn't sort of hit, I absolutely hit a profound crisis in my mid-20s where all of that caught up to me because when your life is not shaped by God's reality, you screw up a lot of stuff. And I did. And I lost a job. And... I, I found myself essentially at, at, at life's rock bottom, at least at that point in my life, confronted with, I say I believe all of these things, none of them are the shaping factors in my life, how did I get here? Which then means you begin to sort through all the things you say you believe. Okay, is in fact God real? Is in fact the Bible true? Uh, I say I believe in grace, but I don't live like grace has any shaping influence on my life and so forth. I don't want to make this breakout about me as much as to say that through that process, through faithful friends in the church, faithful church leaders who walked with me through it, who persistently discipled me, uh, it became something that I realized questions and doubts are endemic to Christians. I thought I was the only one. I was like, everybody else has this all pulled together. And I'm kind of, I'm the, the loser in the corner, is, was kind of the psyche that I had. I don't know that I would have articulated it that way. But I've come to realize everybody has I don't knows, everybody has I'm not sures, everybody has um, I really struggle to believe that. Um, and that's because God is infinite and perfect and we are neither of those things. And so we're inevitably going to run into stuff that, we, that just stumps us. And students get there quick. They're not dumb. Like, you all know this. Like, they do really dumb stuff. They don't have fully formed frontal lobes. I have a 16 and a 13-year-old, so if I speak bluntly about teenagers, it's because I live in their kind of um, idiot savantness all the time. <laughs> they are wonderful and brilliant, and occasionally you're like, Did, what happened? What are we thinking? And they're like, I don't know. That's the standard response. I don't know. So kids get there. My, my daughters have been asking questions about the problem of evil. And the authenticity of scripture and those kinds of things, since they were like eight, they're not, it's not hard for them to go, wait a minute, if God is in control, how in the world did Satan do this in the Garden of Eden? That's a really good question. Also, really hard answer. So, yeah, we have doubts and we don't, we don't grow out of those. So this is, why, this is why this stuff matters so much, because it's not... When you think of doubters in your ministry, you might think of particular people who are coming to you with questions. They're the ones every time you teach or you, you know, you're going through a book or whatever it is, they're like, yeah, I got questions about this. You're like, that's a doubter. The quiet ones are just as full of doubt. 
This is everybody. So that's, that's, why, that's why this matters so much. And it's the reality of God that we want for the students in our, ministers, in our ministries. We want it as parents. We want it as people who are discipling them, caring for them. Not just an echo chamber of, I say a doctrinal statement, you repeat it back. Trust me, I could have argued you to a standstill on the points of Calvinism at 17. And I didn't love Jesus very much. One of those matters a lot more than the other. And... That's so we, we want we want students who are entranced with Jesus. So that's why this matters. So let me start with a question that I want you to give me some feedback on. So we're here to talk about discipling doubters, not convincing doubters, not winning doubters, but discipling doubters. What's a disciple? What is a disciple? Let's just uh, this is one of those. Let's just let's just throw some stuff up there. See, let's see if we can piece together a picture of what is a disciple, because that's that's what we're shooting for here. Right. So talk back. Following Jesus? Follower of Jesus? Yeah, that's great. An apprentice? Good. Someone who listens? Someone who listens? Yes. Gives guidance. Gives guidance? Okay. No, it's not. Somebody who's learning. Someone who's learning? That's good. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, submits to a teacher. That, yeah, that kind of goes with listening and learning. There's, a, there's sort of a, a, a devotion to a particular source of knowledge. Yeah, all of this, all of this is really good. Um, starting off with follower of Jesus, in our context as Christians, yes, that's, that is the uh, right answer. Also, um, I would have been really disappointed if we didn't get Jesus in the answer somewhere. I mean, this is functionally a Sunday school class. So, um, yeah, a disciple very simply is a follower of Jesus. It's a believer, an obeyer. Somebody, so you walk in the footsteps of someone whose life is defined and directed and empowered by Christ. So when we talk about discipleship, that's what we have in mind. Walking, so we are doing the discipling of students. So we're walking with them. So that means we're giving the guidance. We are setting an example. We're teaching. You know, you see multiple times in Paul's writing where he says things like, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's, you want a summed up discipleship model? That's it. That's, that's the whole of it right there. So that's what we're shooting for with the trajectory of reality with Christ. That entranced, falling in love with Jesus, letting that shape life. So if you read the title of this breakout session and thought that this is going to be one where you can come and you're like, man, I've gotten some hard questions from students. This is going to answer those questions. Probably not. Hate to disappoint you. Um, this is not. This is not. You know, William Lane Craig doing deep apologetics on the existence of God. Um, I'm not equipped to do that. I also don't think it's terribly helpful for students. Um, apologetics has its place. Not much in discipleship, frankly. So this is going to be aimed in a different direction because discipling doubters is not about apologetics or clever answers. It's primarily about inviting them and compelling them with our lives into the presence of Christ so that regardless of their questions or their skepticism, they encounter a real Jesus. They will not get all their questions answered, ever, and neither will you. What compels us to follow Jesus is the the person and the work of Christ itself. So we run up against a question, I don't understand how, I don't understand why, me either. But Jesus, well, let's talk about that. 
Doesn't mean you ignore the questions, and we'll get into some of that, but, but that's the trajectory and the direction we want to go. But I want to start by talking about two ways that people can doubt, sort of two, con two conceptual ways of doubting, because um, doubt is not a monolithic thing. When I say doubt, I'm not talking about one thing that everybody does exactly the same way. There's sort of there's a lot of different ways it can go, but I'm going to break it out into two categories. So two primary directions. And very, very briefly, one of them is away from God, and the other one is toward God. You can doubt yourself out of the faith, or you can doubt yourself deeper into faith. Both, both of those are real things. So let's, let's talk about the first one. The doubting away from God or away from faith. And it's, I put it under the title of unbelieving doubt which sounds redundant. But in the Bible, unbelief and doubt are not the same things. You know, there's overlap, and one can lead to the other. But unbelief functionally is a rejection of God's word and God's authority. Doubt is having questions about God's word and God's authority. Doubt at its baseline is simply, I don't know, I'm not sure which when you're dealing with students is them about everything. Now they're very confident about a lot of things that they shouldn't be, and they're certain that they know everything, but the foundation is really shallow. And so there's a lot of, I don't know, I'm not sure. I couldn't totally defend my position, that kind of thing. So let me, let me just talk through unbelieving doubt, some of the characteristics. And the, so this is, this is, again, this is the rejection of God's word Unbelieving doubt is, is what moves us from a place of I don't know toward I don't care and I don't want to know. So it stubbornly rejects answers to questions. So it's marked by pride. This is the kind of doubt that when you, when you give an answer, especially an answer from Scripture, just says, yeah, not good enough. That's kind of the posture. Yeah, I don't, I'm not persuaded. I don't like it. There's not, there's not a, a humble reception, mulling over, considering. It tends to demand proof for everything. There's, a, um, there's an unwillingness to let mystery exist in unbelieving doubt. If you can't 100% assure me of this, it's not real. Like, yeah, but I can't even 100% assure you that your mother loves you. Like, that, there's, there's plenty of evidence for this. And you, are, and you are confident it's true, but I can't prove it. So, but there's an arrogance in this, and it usually comes from a whole enlightenment mindset that we don't even know we have of, of you know, we want science, you know, the scientific method. That doesn't work very well with God because he created science. So it's marked by that, that posture and that spirit. And uh, thirdly, it refuses to acknowledge, so it refuses to acknowledge that mystery might exist because God is greater than our understanding. So it, it just has confidence in its own mental capacity. Unbelieving doubt says, I can understand anything. So if your answer stumps me, your answer's bad. Not, I might, I, I might be out of my depth here. Which means that it then, it then lowers God. Because it's saying, well, if I can't get my head around the entirety of God... Why trust him? Why believe him? When in reality, the opposite is true. The fact that I can't get my mind around God is evidence that maybe he's more trustworthy than anything else. 
But unbelieving doubt is not always that aggressive. So the, the characteristics I've given thus far are sort of the in-your-face, this is the skeptic, this is the arguer, there's, there's, a, there's sort of a belligerent arrogance to it. But sometimes unbelieving doubt is really quiet and reserved. It kind of eats away at somebody from the inside. That's what I was saying earlier. The quiet ones are the ones you have to watch out for, and it, that doesn't just apply to, like, serial killers. Um, <laughs> It hides and it veils itself, this unbelieving doubt. So people who are struggling with it in their, in their interior slide through life hoping that nobody discovers its existence. So on the one hand, you have people who are like, they're waving this like a flag. My, my jersey is I don't believe you. And others are like, I don't, I don't want anybody to know what I don't believe or what I struggle to believe. And often that comes with a veneer of confidence or sincerity. And trust me, as a pastor's kid... Uh, there are some church kids who excel at the face of confident belief, faithful following of Jesus, and, the, and inside is a mess. Often it refuses to acknowledge its own existence. That was a lot of my story. So I wasn't actively being a hypocrite for a long time. I got to that point. But I started with not even being aware of what I what I didn't know and didn't believe and didn't have confidence in. I just, I just walled it off. This is basically living in denial. So unbelieving doubt can very much not even be aware. So a doubter cannot even be aware that that's what they're dealing with. There's just sort of a vague sense of dissatisfaction. I'm not, you know, every time I hear somebody talk about loving Jesus, I'm like, yeah, I'm not there. And it has sort of those marks. So it lives on distraction. It pretends everything is okay. It suppresses. So yeah, you have this this jersey-wearing, aggressive doubter. And then you have this quiet veneer of confidence, not even totally sure what's going on. Interior is a mess. Doubter. They're both unbelieving doubt. They're both that reality. And the heart behind both of them, whether it's bold or private, is the same. It puts the doubter in the position of God. It puts the doubter in the position of God. Because what it does is it puts God in the position of proving himself and being subservient to my questions. You get what I'm saying? So that seems obvious with the belligerent doubter. When you say, I don't believe you, you're putting God on trial. C.S. Lewis has a great collection of essays. The title of it is God in the Dock. It's a British way of saying God on trial. Um, that's, that's kind of the concept here. But, the, the quiet, but even in the quiet doubt, that's a rejection of God and God's word. So even if it's not pointing a finger and accusing God, it's quietly saying God is not enough. God doesn't have the answers. He isn't safe to approach. He will reject me. All of which are a direct defiance of what God has said. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will never leave you or forsake you. You know, forgiveness through the blood of Christ. All these are promises in Scripture. And so that unbelieving doubt that says, I don't think I can approach God, is just denying all of that. And so it's putting the doubter in the position of, God has to prove himself to me. What he has said isn't good enough. He can't handle my questions, etc. There's, there's a posture of guilty until proven innocent. As a category, that's a quick summation of unbelieving doubt. When we think of doubt, that's generally what we think of. We generally think of this as a dangerous thing, a bad thing, a questionable thing, possibly a sinful thing. That's certainly how doubters often think of themselves. 
I don't belong here. There's no room for these questions in church, etc. That's a thing that as people who, who minister to others, we, we want to fix that. We want to create a context where the questions all come to the surface so that the gospel of Christ can speak into them. That's, a, that, that's for later in the, the, the session, though. So that's unbelieving doubt. Now let's look at the second way of doubting, what I call believing doubt. The first one sounded redundant. This one sounds like an oxymoron. A um, bit of a contradiction in terms. How can you believe and doubt at the same time? Well, consider Hebrews 11.1 1 with me. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That also sounds like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? If you think about it, assurance, being sure of something. What, is, what do we have assurance in? Things hoped for. That means things that haven't happened yet. The things that we're not entirely 100% confident in, things we don't have evidence or proof for, those kinds of things. And the conviction of things not seen. Conviction is, you know, I'm going to plant my flag here, I'm going to stake my life on this. On what? The unknown. That's, that's the juxtaposition here. And obviously we know that hope for and unseen, there, there is evidence for this. It is rooted in the words of God. But my point is that those things that seem at odds, belief and doubt, can go hand in hand. Faith goes hand in hand with not knowing and not being sure. If you know and you're sure, you don't have faith. You have proof. To be a Christian requires faith because so much of our resting in God and his word is beyond our sight and beyond our understanding. So, that means that doubt and faith go hand in hand. Also means doubt can walk us into deeper faith. Because all of that, I don't know, I'm not sure, it's a conduit that can walk us into greater confidence and belief in the Lord. So here's what believing doubt looks like. And you'll notice that it is a, it is a bit of a photo negative of unbelieving doubt. If that was all the dark in the middle, this is all the whiter on the outside, but they both, they both kind of present the same thing here. So here's what believing doubt looks like. It seeks truth by asking honest and humble questions. Fun believing doubt is bold, I don't believe you questions. This is, I, I just want to know the truth. So questions with an openness to receive answers, even answers that are not exactly what we hope to hear. Believing doubt comes with questions, and when the answer is something that doesn't quite compute or is, uh, requires some reflection or isn't entirely satisfying, we don't reject it. We, we chew on it. We absorb it. We explore it. We say, okay, what am, what am I missing? We assume that maybe, maybe we're, the, we're the one with the shortcoming, not the answer. It's humble and it's willing to trust. So that means that it asks with the expectancy that God has an answer, which is not always the same as God giving an answer. Believing doubt yearns to know God. Just think about that for a minute. So much of the questioning of God is not to know him better, but to disprove him. Believing doubt asks questions of God in the spirit of, I want to know you more. I want to understand you more. If you are in a healthy friendship or a healthy marriage or a healthy relationship of any kind, you ask the other person a lot of questions. 
Not to trip them up, not to trick them, but to understand how are they feeling? What are they believing? What did they do today? What matters most to them? What do they want to do this evening? Like all of the stuff because you want to know them more. You want to know their heart. You want to know their direction. You want to know their struggles. Not that God has any struggles, but you understand what I'm saying. In a relational context, questions are not to trip somebody up. Once you start mistrusting somebody, your questions take on a different tack, right? You ask questions to see where the inconsistencies are. You know the answer to the question. You think you know the answer to the question. Hey, where were you last night? And the answer, you're like, actually, I, have, I tracked your iPhone. I know exactly where you were, and it wasn't there. Uh, as parents of teens, I encourage that kind of behavior. Um, so it's, you see what I'm saying? There are questions that seek to know more and questions that seek to trust less. Believing doubt wants to know God more through the questions, and then it trusts the one who answers We won't always receive the answer we hope for. This is one of the hardest things for students. Um, My observation over the years as somebody who did student ministry for a long time and who now is raising teenagers is they live in this weird dichotomy between do not tell me what to do, but I want everything to be black and white. You know, I don't like rules, but also I don't like to have to be discerning. That kind of thing. So an answer from God that is that requires wisdom, that isn't a complete, like, so let's take the problem of evil. I'm not going to wade into it, but like, there is not an answer to that that you go, oh, okay, that's neat and tidy. It requires you to get to the place of going, God is sovereign, and he's got this. That's not comfortable. That's a place of tension, not a place of tidiness. Teens don't like that. But believing doubt is the has the posture of saying, okay, I don't like it, but I accept it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on trusting God in the midst of this stuff that I'm not totally comfortable with. It believes the one who answers, not just the words of the answer. And that's because believing doubt has faith like a child. It asks like a child, which is distinctly different than asking like a teenager. Children ask questions and believe and trust the answer. They fully expect an answer, and they fully accept the answer. And then they grow out of that, where they ask questions, possibly to challenge authority, or you answer, and they're like, yeah, that's not true. That's not what Wikipedia said. Um, and, and, you know, that kind of thing. So faith like a child means a full reliance and dependence and acceptance of the answers that God gives. That's believing doubt. Children know next to nothing about the, you know, on the scale of all the knowledge in the universe, which is why they're constantly, why this? What's this? What, you know, can we do this? It's just, a, it's just a machine gun of questions, and every answer is piecing together reality, and they accept it, and they go, okay, you know? And you can, you can teach kids some absurd stuff. Why is the sky blue? You can answer that literally however you want. A four-year-old will go, okay. You didn't set them up very well for the future, but that faith like a child, that's the posture of believing doubt. I don't know. I have questions, and then I'm going to accept this, and then I'm just going to keep asking these questions. So in short, believing doubt means that we have the right posture towards God. If unbelieving doubt positions us in authority over God, at least in our own minds, believing doubt understands that who God is and who I am. And that's so we admit our weaknesses and limitations and and depend on God. So let's keep these categories in mind as we now start to look at a model for discipleship of doubters. We have unbelieving doubt. We have believing doubt. We have doubt that 
leads people away from trusting in the Lord and the kind of doubt that walks us deeper into faith in God because it it positions us as recipients, not challengers. So I want to transition now to talk about a model for discipling doubters. And um, I'm not clever enough to come up with anything other than what the Bible says, nor do I want to be that clever. So what I want to do is just look at four instances of how Jesus responded to doubters and see what we see in common there. So four instances of Jesus responding to people with pretty distinct doubts. So what I'm going to do is just read verses from each of these stories, kind of give you a brief summary of each. So just keep them each in your mind. You can go back and read them in full later. And then just look at the characteristics of each and what we can observe from Jesus. So the first is from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 27. I'm not going to read all 14 or 15 verses. Um, This is the story. Jesus comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration. He encounters his disciples in the bit of kind of a melee, bit of a, a ruckus in a crowd. And a father has brought a demon possessed boy to be healed, and they can't do it. And Jesus steps in, and he has this. He has this interaction with the father. So he asks, he basically says, what's wrong? And the father says, many times it has thrown him into fire and water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the boy cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus goes on to cast the demon out of the boy and uh, restore him to his father. That verse in uh, 9.24, immediately the father of the boy cried out, I believe, I believe, help my unbelief, was a a trajectory change for me in my faith. This is kind of an aside. Because what it showed me was everything I'm talking about. It, It opened my eyes to the reality of believing doubt. I was firmly under the impression that if I didn't have all of the answers and didn't have total confidence, I was a garbage Christian. And what I saw here was a father who approached Jesus and looked him in the eye and said, yeah, there are things that I believe. I wouldn't be here otherwise. I'm a mess and help my unbelief. There's a paradigm there. That's just an aside, but it it is a transformative thing. And if you can invite your students into that reality, it's it will, it will rock their worlds in an amazing way. So that's the first instance, Mark 9, verses 14 to 27, the father of the demon-possessed boy and Jesus' response to him. The second is from John chapter 20. Um, I'm going to read verses 24 to 29. It's a little bit longer than that. This is another one that you're probably familiar with. It is the interaction of Thomas and Jesus after Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus had appeared once to the disciples. Thomas wasn't there. This is his response, and then Jesus' response to him. But Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the marks of the nails in his hands and put my fingers into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. 
Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. There's a lot there. I'm not going to get into it in depth. I would like to come to Thomas's defense for a minute. Um, he's often referred to as doubting Thomas, which clearly he did. But also, have any of you ever encountered a resurrected human being? <laughs> Me either. Not much seems more reasonable than struggling to believe in the appearance of somebody you saw crucified and put in the ground. Yes, he had heard Jesus promise his resurrection, and believing Jesus at the first reception of his words is the best thing anybody can do. None of us do that. Or we do it and then we come back on our word. I mean, Peter does that in in Mark 8. Who do, they, who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ. And then two verses later, he's getting told, get behind me, Satan. Like, there's a quick pivot there. He didn't totally get it. All that to say, I have a lot of empathy for Thomas. If I had not been there, and they said, we saw Jesus, I'd have been like, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think you guys are crazy. Also, I don't, I don't know how to believe what you're saying. I have no category for this. So, there's... We need to, sometimes when we read scripture, we need to put ourselves in the human context, not just the doctrinal realities. It would be very hard to believe in somebody coming out of the grave, frankly. All right, next instance is from John 21, and it is Jesus' interaction with Peter. Again, after the resurrection, so Peter had denied Jesus three times during his trial. And then the rooster had crowed, and Peter knew his failure and went away and wept bitterly. And then we don't see a lot else between, between the, this is the first kind of recorded interaction. And one of the verses says, Jesus turned and looked at him, turned his gaze on him. So we then come to this interaction. So they're eating breakfast on the side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus has this to say to and with Peter. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. And then twice more he has that interaction. Basically, one interaction per denial. This is Jesus' response to Peter, who publicly abandoned him at his moment of greatest vulnerability and need. And the last instance is from Matthew 28 verses 16 to 20, which most of you will know as the Great Commission, which is not a passage that most people think about in terms of faith and doubt. But it's in there. Let me read it. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Right there, before These profound words. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, fitting for this breakout, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Father bringing his demon-possessed son to Jesus who is at wit's end. We have Thomas struggling to believe in the resurrection, 
We have Peter struggling to believe he could ever be restored to relationship with Christ. And we have disciples who have now walked with Jesus for 40 days after his resurrection. And some doubted. All of this gives me great hope. Because these are the people on whom God built his church. So, let's just look. What, what do we see in these stories about discipling doubters? Particularly Jesus' response. So in these stories, we can, see, we can see ourselves and we can see the students that we minister to. Overwhelmed, overwrought, helpless doubters who don't know where to turn. We see that in the story of the Father. Stubborn doubters who, who maybe wish they could believe, but something in their mind will not let them accept what this, this unlikely reality. You see that in Thomas. They can't see the truth. Those who doubt whether Jesus could ever want them again after how much they've failed. Doubt is not just intellectual. Doubt is often guilt and shame based. We deny or don't accept the words and realities of Christ because how could he love me? Students carry that weight. They're not good enough in their own minds, so how could, how could they ever be accepted by Christ? And then there's the ones who doubt even when they've seen and experienced the reality of Jesus. These are the hardest ones to convince They don't have any reason not to believe. All the other ones, they've got reasons. Now, Christ Christ overwhelms the reasons, but you've walked with him. You've talked with him. You've eaten meals with him. You were there when he walked out of the grave. You've eaten with him since. You've lived with him. You've heard every word he's ever teached. And you still doubt? What's the matter with you? It doesn't matter what the matter with them is. That's just, that's the state of a sinful human heart. We struggle to believe. So we see this comprehensive nature of doubt. But just as we can see students and ourselves and the characteristics of doubt, so too we can see how Jesus responds to them in three main ways. First, Jesus was available to them and approached them. He didn't create any barriers. He made it easy for them to express and come to him. Help my unbelief. That's a phrase said directly to the face of Jesus in front of a crowd. He passed through barriers to get to them. He walked through a wall to see Thomas come to belief. He walked through their unbelief. He rose from the grave to see them come to belief. He sought them out. That's a model for us. Now, we will never be Jesus Christ, nor should we try to be Jesus Christ. We're pointing people to Jesus Christ. But if Jesus approached doubters that way, so should we. The only people that there's a record of Jesus basically shutting down were those who were false teachers who led others astray and who were so confident in their own righteousness that, that they, they just didn't need him. And there may be a place to be like, I'm done. I'm done trying to persuade you. I'm, I'm going to hand you over to prayer. But we don't see much of that from Jesus if people are still struggling. So he was available to them and he approached them. Number two, he corrected and taught and proclaimed truth, but he didn't condemn. 
Jesus was one of the bluntest preachers who ever preached. Preached about hell, he preached about judgment, he preached about he was he made all sorts of exclusive truth claims that our society is super uncomfortable with. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Good luck finding it anywhere else. Like this is he didn't have any problem being bold. And all of these struggling people came to him and were not condemned by him. Bold gospel proclamation and being a jerk don't go together. There's a reason why children loved Jesus. There's a reason why women who were lesser members of that society and were generally treated as of little significance befriended him, and he befriended them. And he treated them with dignity. And they were the first ones at the tomb. And they played a profound role in the launching of his church. Why? Because Jesus wasn't a jerk. Something we don't do well at in our conservative Christianity. But thinking, think about the phrases in these stories and how Jesus offers correction and the correction brings people to belief rather than bringing them to condemnation. In, this, in, Mark, uh, in Mark 9, uh, I didn't read the whole passage, but there's a place where he says, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? He calls them out for their unbelief, but what you hear there is almost, it, it's yearning. He yearns for them to believe. There's the sentence, you know, that the father says, if you can help us, he says, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. That can be said a couple different ways. He can be like, if you can, like, who do you think that I am? Or it can be more like, you know, if, if a five-year-old brings you a jar and is like, Dad, can you open this? You're like, can I open this? You know, and it's more like, this is, of course I can. And I would love to do it for you. And you pop the thing open. and somebody, This has that spirit to it where Jesus is like, if you can, I would like nothing more. This is, this is my heart for you. And to Thomas, he says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So again, we see a correction and a blessing. He lifts up, he corrects, but he doesn't say to Thomas, you don't, you're not as good as these others. You don't measure up. He, he calls him to believe. You know, he says, he says, here, put your hands here so that you will believe. So there's correction in gentleness. Three times he asked Peter, do you love me? He doesn't say, you don't love me. It's a big difference. He gives Peter the opportunity to repent and calls him to repentance. And in Matthew 28, after some doubted, despite all evidence that they don't need to, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Where does our confidence rest? With the one who has all authority. Your doubts, you don't need them. And they make no sense. I have all authority. So he showed them that there's a better response than their questions and their fears. So Jesus was available and approached. Jesus corrected and taught and proclaimed, but he didn't condemn. And thirdly, Jesus gave them what they needed to overcome their doubts. This does not mean that Jesus gives us whatever we want. It means that Jesus wants people to believe. So he did cast out the demon. He let Thomas see and touch the scars. He looked Peter in the eye and spoke to him as a companion and a friend. He took the actions that moved people to belief. 
That's the Jesus that we get to invite people to. If you are serving and discipling a struggling, doubting student, or if you yourself are struggling with it, you can be confident that nobody wants that person to believe in Jesus more than Jesus does. And he will do the things that it takes if if they're willing to accept and believe. You you never need to lack confidence in bringing somebody to the reality of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the presence of Jesus for belief. He gave his presence, his power, his love, his healing, his forgiveness, his very life, and he finished with a commission. He gave everything, and then he gave a command, which is nuts. He sent these people who doubted into the world to make disciples of all nations which is why you and I are here. Because faithful idiots did that. And thank God, because we get to now be faithful idiots walking in their footsteps. What hope that gives us. Peter is one of my favorite characters in the Bible because he's so dumb. And I resonate with it. He just gets it wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and Jesus doesn't give up on him. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And he did it. Which, for somebody who has been wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong, is really affirming and hope-giving. So that's how Jesus models it. Now, what do we do? I want to end with just three quick, uh, maybe it's my Baptist roots, but three quick points of application. What do we do? First, be grounded in Jesus. I said that Jesus was our model for discipling doubters, and that's true. But we can't model ourselves after Jesus without living in reality with Jesus. He's, we can't, we don't have the, we don't have the capability. The same things that he offered to doubters are the things we depend on as disciplers. Presence, power, love, healing, forgiveness, his entire life, his commands. We are grounded in those. We're not Jesus. We point people to Jesus and we do so in dependence on Jesus. That's that's our starting point. So as you disciple doubting people, you can't do that unless you are grounded deeply in the reality of Jesus Christ through his word. Number two, don't outsmart the gospel. Don't outsmart the gospel. Jesus never did. He simply pointed to himself as Savior and Lord, and he called people to repent. Repent. His first sermon was, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Not a lot of clever in that. Not a lot of cultural, like, hmm, how do we we find the perfect analogy to, to, you know, to kind of rope in this group? This group has a hard time listening to sermons, so let's, let's kind of speak their language. No, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm not saying that culturally relevant and aware preaching or teaching or discipling is bad, but don't get more clever than Jesus did. Also be aware of all the ways he was very culturally savvy in talking to Jewish people. He offered himself as the way, the truth, and the life, and so should we. Do not outsmart the gospel of Jesus Christ as your disciple. You, if you get sucked into debates about philosophy and cultural this and ethics that, and they don't come back around to reality of Jesus Christ... Congratulations, you might have shown an in, you know, your intellect. You might have won an argument against a 17-year-old. But you didn't win a disciple. 
And third, don't hold teens to a different standard than Jesus did. Jesus was a friend of sinners. A friend of sinners. He was called that as an insult. What a compliment and what a promise to us. But he was a friend of sinners without affirming or accepting their sins. It is doable. Love is not affirmation. Don't, let, don't be pinned into false dichotomies. If you love me, you will affirm every choice that I make. False. If I love you, I will love you. I will affirm the things that are worthy of affirmation according to Jesus Christ. There's no other way. That's what Jesus did. He was gentle and lowly, but he called people to repent. Calling people to repent isn't, isn't harsh. It's summoning them out of condemnation. I didn't mean they'll like it. But if you're concerned about people liking you in the midst of discipleship, priorities might be a little out of order. Likeability is... We're not promised that. In fact, we're promised the opposite. People will hate the gospel of Jesus Christ at some point. Everybody who walks faithfully with Christ will face persecution. These are things that the Bible says. Your teens will resent aspects of the gospel when, when it confronts the parts of their life that they hate the most or that they refuse to give up the most. That's okay. You are gentle, you are lowly, you are loving like Jesus Christ. We don't hold them to a different standard than Jesus is. He called people to believe and then walked with them in their doubts. He spent three years with those 12 idiots, one of whom he was certain was going to betray him. That's a lot of patience. I think that's longer than the average tenure of people in student ministry. And I don't mean that as an insult to any of you because student ministry is hard. Uh, Any parent of teens would like to do it for less than three years. (laughs) But Jesus walked with them. So don't hold teens to a different standard than Jesus did. Friend of sinners without affirming or accepting. Gentle and lowly, but calling people to repent. Summoning people to belief, but walking with them in their doubts. We've got, I think, about 20-ish minutes, from what I was told, for questions. So... I don't know if we'll take it all, but fire away with whatever you've got, and I will do my best to give you an adequate response. Yes, sir. Back. Uh, yeah, so um, in terms of discipling, um, the question I have is um, helping disciple the people around that person as well, if that makes sense. So, like, helping disciple their parents. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, that's a there's a, there's a lot of context that that is that probably necessary to answer that question really well, and that can only be done well if you have a if you're in a church context where you know student ministry doesn't live in isolation from everything else. I mean, I know that's that's part of the heart of this conference. And uh, so if, if, if student ministry lives in isolation, so you got kind of the kids get sent off to like their, their little backwater basement dungeon to do whatever it is that students do while real church happens over here, that can't really happen very well because you don't have any influence in the church and the church doesn't have any influence down here. So that, I think that's probably the biggest piece because then 
you're sharing the responsibility for discipleship with the people who are leading small groups. And maybe that's a conversation you have. I mean, if, they, if it's a church family that's in a group, you go to the group leader, or the Sunday school teacher, or whatever, and you say, hey, this is kind of where we're at. And you, you just team up on it. But, but yeah, that, that um, unified discipleship and ministry across the church where students are part of the church and the church views them that way is, is the only way I can think of to do that well. Does that help? Yeah. Okay. Any question down here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, can they just be time and relationship, maybe, the answer? Uh, there's a, a senior that's probably in the believing doubt category mm-hmm. that I meet with, and he can name off 12 or 13 things the Bible contradicts itself, and he can name off all these things. But uh, as you said, like you've got over time getting to that place where the, the root was you knew a bunch of facts. Right. But the, the reality wasn't wasn't landing in your heart. Like getting to the root, I could answer all those questions that he would throw at me. But getting down to the what's underneath all that down, yeah. would you just say it's just like time and relationships and presence that would help him get to the and this this kid getting to the doubt, the believing doubter, getting down underneath like where kind of to the root. I'm kind of thinking like there's a root or roots yeah. to that. Yeah, it's, I mean, time and relationship are, are a piece of it. I mean, that's, you know, it's kind of where I landed this was Jesus walking with people patiently. With a senior, you're running out of time. There's also a place for urgency. You know, the, let's, I'm going to, I'm going to take this person out for dinner or whatever, and I'm going to, I'm going to level with them. I'm really, I have some things I really want you to hear, or I'm really concerned about this, or not, not in a judgmental way, but just in a, like, you, you, throw, your, you throw your best fastball and right there, and that's, that, there's a time and a place for that. You can't do it constantly or they'll tune you out. But if you've earned the right to be heard, say some stuff. And I think the other thing, and, and this is, it is really hard to talk about discipleship in any meaningful way without just sort of going, yeah, but it's also all the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean that in a passive way because we are called to make disciples. That's a command. Okay. Also, none of that happens without the Holy Spirit opening that young man's eyes to the beauty of Scripture. Scripture says things that sound like contradictions. The only way you know that is not the case is by A, deep study of Scripture, which he hasn't done. He's 18. And B, an awareness of the aliveness of the Word of God, which only comes through the Holy Spirit. So there's a, the piece that I left out of this, foolishly, is uh, pray like crazy. You can't disciple anybody without it being wrapped in prayer. Um, Because otherwise you will inevitably move towards your, like you were saying, your wisdom, answering all those questions. And there is a place to have those conversations. Like, Christianity is, is, is not irrational. Sometimes it's beyond rational. There are aspects of it that we, we can't totally understand. It. it is not an illogical, irrational belief system. So we need to be pretty grounded in how to talk through this in a logical way. We can't just talk about, this is my experience. Well, because then, why does your experience trump their experience? You have to be able to say, objectively, this is true. This backs up this. Rationally, this. Theologically, this fits with this. That stuff matters. So those are worthwhile conversations to have. 
And that might be the jumping in place to say, yeah, all this is, all this is true, but where's this coming from? What's in your heart? And, and try to get underneath it a little bit. Question back in? Yeah, um, you mentioned some of the students who are quietly doubting. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, I know I work with pastors, kids, kids whose dads are in seminary, things like that. And I just wonder what are some contexts that you can, where you can uh, create a space for them to feel comfortable enough voicing their doubts so that you can address them? Um, most of those won't be public contexts. I mean, I don't know the, the nature of your ministry. One of the things that our church does, which with, with two teenage daughters I'm profoundly thankful for, is uh, small group contexts where they develop pretty meaningful relationships with really strong leaders. Um, that's those conversations, so coffee, lunch, whatever, with those leaders, and then pointed questions. Because a lot of times those quiet doubters will not be able to articulate what they're feeling. But if you say, hey, I'm kind of wondering, are you struggling with this? Do you have these questions? And you kind of watch their eyes get big. Like, yeah, I, A, how did you know? And B, I didn't, I couldn't have said it. I just had one of those conversations with one of my kids recently. So I wrote a book called The Pastor's Kid, which deals with just a lot of these sort of internal struggles of genuine faith in the midst of, of uh being a ministry kid, my daughter knows I wrote this book. She has never read it, and I don't care because I didn't read most of my dad's stuff either. Um, but she was really frustrated the other day because of some of the, like, I feel the squeeze of being a pastor's kid. So I just started asking really pointed questions. Did you feel like this when this happens? Eyes get big, yeah. Does it, does it make you struggle? You know, you, you get mad this way or frustrated this way or makes you want to withdraw this way. She's like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I know. Me too. Also, I'm nearly 40 and I still feel the same way a lot. Um, but the conversation got really fruitful once the stuff was unearthed. She wasn't going to freely tell me that very easily. I had to go find it. So small contacts with trusted leaders who can ask really pointed questions because those quiet people if you wait for them to come out you're probably just going to lose them you know they're sophomores they're juniors they're seniors they go off to college and, and you never had that conversation go get them like teens are teens are often waiting for somebody to to read their minds to ask them questions. I mean, I remember being that way. Like, I was sullen and mad about stuff. And I no chance I was ever going to tell anybody. And I was like, why didn't anybody ask me about this? I'm like, idiot, because you never said anything to anybody. <laughs> That's dumb. But, you know, also the nature of being an adolescent. So, yeah, go get them. And, and be, be gently pointed, kind of scalpelish with the questions. Do you struggle with this? I'm wondering about this. Hey, you said this one time. And it made me wonder those kinds of things having that keen listening ear to what's behind the other things they say or the things that they avoid. You know, patterns of silence are dead giveaways too. So if somebody, like, if everybody's talking about something and somebody isn't, they feel a certain sort of way about that thing. So those, having, having that sort of perception as well. Other questions? You said, I think, that faith and doubt are almost tied together. Mm -hmm. they're, they're bound to happen at some point. I'm thinking of a student who... It seems like he just accepts everything as faith. Yeah. He doesn't have any doubts. Yep. Would you say, 
what's the best approach to that? I, you know, I don't want to go ahead and plan it out to be like, hey, your faith isn't as strong as you think. Here you go. But you start to bring in some of those, like, here's what your friends are asking, or here's some potential quadrants of scripture. How do you handle yeah. someone that really does seem just truly faithful and doesn't have that down? Man, that's a great question. Um, because an untested faith is, might be not genuine. It's, there's a certain kind of church kid who's skating through church and doing everything and accepting everything and spouting everything is the easiest. Like, it just kind of comes naturally. It's like, I'm just going along to get along and this is going to be great. And then at some point they will get rocked. You know, that, that will happen. You don't want to be the one to rock them. Like, you don't want to artificially set up a crisis of faith. <laughs> Um, but I think, I think confronting, yeah, confronting with questions that other people are asking, putting it in a context where, um, you know, if there's two or three young men and some of them are really struggling. And so you got like happy go lucky dude over here. And then these two guys are like, I don't know how to believe this. I'm really struggling or somebody whose family's falling apart. And so they, their, their crisis of faith is, you know, where's God in the midst of this? And you got happy-go-lucky over here. He can vicariously have his faith challenged. But that requires honesty. Are, is there a context where students can feel safe? Kind of like what you were asking. Context where students can feel safe to unearth this. And again, smaller context where the leader sets the rules. You know, you can talk about anything here. There's not going to be judgment. I'm not going not to jump down your throat. I'm certainly not going to share it like... Nobody's going nobody's to leave this circle and gossip about it. That takes time, but I, that, that is a way. But the, the other thing, and last thing on this question, um, one thing my, my dad said to me one time that didn't make a lot of sense to me at the time, but it does now, is you build a theology of suffering when you're not suffering because when you are, you're not going to be you know, systematically thinking through things. So you stock that kid up on profound biblical truths, and at some point, he's going to get blindsided by something in life. Hopefully a mild something. And whatever is in the bank of memory, the biblical memory bank, is the thing the Holy Spirit can use to, like, all of a sudden faith kind of blossoms. He's like, oh, this is, this is that stuff that I nodded about, but now it means something to me. Yes? seems pretty disinterested in, in spiritual things and the other day we were reading through a chapter and somehow the conversation started to it's like where does the where does Bible talk about dinosaurs and like just all these very random things that have nothing to do with John. Um, and, and that's kind of a pattern I've seen with multiple students in our ministry is asking asking a lot of questions that just I think it's hard to gauge okay is this coming from like a genuine curiosity or is this a heart Issue in a way. Uh, do you have any words of wisdom in how to navigate those conversations? Man, seventh graders. Um, I could give you a lot of examples of how I've tried, and most of which I come away from going, yeah, that wasn't it. Um, I think in a one on one context, the, as a general principle, I would say, 
in a group context, you say, great question, come talk to me about it afterwards. That's not what we're talking about. You know, let's, let's stay on task. In a one-on-one -on -one context, brief answer, and then say, but, like, let's, let's look at what's here. Because you, want, you don't want to shut down questions. You don't want to, you know, kind of, it's certainly not in a group context, make anybody feel stupid for asking a question, things like that. But also, those, those, are, those are red herring questions. You know, it's kind of, if I wave my hand up here, you don't see what I'm doing down here kind of thing. And it's, it's the distraction. And honestly, like there's, there's an, the, the New Testament talks about that when it talks about, you know, getting uh, sucked into needless debates and endless genealogies and all this stuff. That, that's similar to this, like captivation by stuff that you could chase this for the rest of your life and never meet Jesus. Jesus is not found with the dinosaurs. Um, uh, otherwise, he would have talked about them. So... Yeah, I would say, you know, you dignify the person, you briefly answer the question, or you briefly say, I don't really know. Maybe we can look at that another time, and then bring it back to the thing at hand. And I was talking to Vince Greenwald, who's our student minister at our church. He's doing another breakout right now, so you guys all missed it. Sorry about that. Um, about middle school ministry. And he, we were just talking about principles of this, and he was just like, he's like, middle schoolers almost never seem vibrant in a biblical teaching context. They just, they just don't. But the word of God is living and active, and so you do it anyway. And there's just sort of a like, and, you, and you, you, know, you find different methods to do it. So if you think their attention span is 10, 12, 15 minutes, whatever, do something for 10 minutes or do something for nine minutes before you lose them. And then do something else biblical for nine minutes and then something else biblical for nine minutes. So some teaching, some discussion, some whatever, that kind of thing. With that question, though, yeah, just do not let students be distracted because there is something profound about them seeing that the word of God comes first and we're not, we're not chasing rabbits out of this space. Does that help? Okay. Let's go here and um, then here and then there. So I'm new to teaching and you mm -hmm. that. Um, I, I find it marvelous, especially for middle school and even some of the high schoolers, when I dumb down the lessons to the point where it's almost laughable. And then I have other people teaching, and they'll come out and say, I'm teaching at a you know college level. And I'm like, why? And then I get, you, you dumbed that down way too much. You didn't. But I see it as getting them to understand the glory of the story and what it is mm -hmm. more than they can learn the theological side, kind of like, you know, you said all that other stuff, but getting them to embrace the story to me is more important than all that. I'm kind of curious on what your thoughts are. I mean, I would always avoid the phrase dumbing down in general just because there's, because it, it implies something about the students and something about the teaching, neither of which you want to be true. Um, but I would say there is an appropriateness to to simplifying, there's also a necessity for stretching. So, you know, teach at a level that is understandable, that's not, nobody likes being talked down to. Um, people, want, people want to be challenged, even, even lazy students are mad if you don't challenge them. Like that, guy, that guy talks to me like I'm six, that kind of thing. Um, so, but, theological words, for example. Uh, take so say, say you're teaching through First John, you get to propitiation. It's pretty valuable for students to know what propitiation means because what you're doing is enabling them to read the Bible on their own. 
Because if you teach the Bible at a level that the Bible doesn't talk, they're scared of that book. We don't want them to be scared of that book. We want them to approach this, maybe with a little trepidation. I'm intimidated by the Bible, but I'm not scared of it. So you want to teach them at a level where you like, the message is clear, but let's take a couple minutes and talk about this complicated thing. What is propitiation? I mean, it just means wrath satisfied. Why does that matter in the concept of the cross? Those kinds of things. So you, you don't want them to approach the Bible, run into something and go, I don't know what to do with this. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, but again, there is an appropriateness to just being like, I'm going to put this on the bottom shelf and then bring it up. And, you know, so you kind of, you alternate, you want to do both. Super simple sometimes, but don't, don't leave them there or they'll never be able to engage the word of God at the level it's written. Does that, that help? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Good question down here? Yeah. Um, I was just reflecting on a past season of doubt that I experienced. And when I voiced it, I was kind of met with like, well, just trust God. <laughs> and I was kind of like, I want to. Yeah, that's but, the problem, not the solution. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I want to, but, or like, just read your Bible. And so I think I was like on a hunt for solid biblical resources mm-hmm. for doubt. And I think I still am for people who are now in that situation. Do yeah. you have any recommendations? I mean, I wrote a book called Help My Unbelief. It's great. <laughs> no. Um, but, no, in terms of resources, the, well, first of all, let me just say, if you encounter somebody who's doubting, um, there's a difference between empathy and validation. You know what I mean? So what would have probably been helpful to you is somebody to come along and go, I get that, I have been there, or let me hear more about this, to kind of, again, walk with you through it without validating, like, oh, those are such, like, yes, you're absolutely right. No, you're probably not absolutely right, but also you're not absolutely wrong. So that, that just as a response, that's helpful. Um, it really depends on the kinds of doubts. There are, there are people who, I mean, if you're talking about doubting when it comes to things like suffering, which is the basis of a lot of doubt, you know, you get students, they come from a broken home. How do I trust God as a father? How do I, um, how do I know God is good? Our family's a mess, doesn't, sure, sure doesn't seem that way. Um, there's a lot of great books. I think about uh, Paul Tripp has one called A Shelter in the Time of Storm. I think that's right. And it's something like 52 reflections on, on Psalms, just looking at pain and suffering and how the psalmists respond. Psalms themselves, going through psalms with students, because go to, if you ever have a student who's struggling with doubt, Psalm 88 is a great place to start, because Psalm 88 is the one psalm that doesn't have a happy ending. It's just dark, except that it starts with something like, O Lord, my Savior. So you have an entirely miserable prayer offered to the Savior. That's a really good model for doubting well. Yeah, you're going to sit in this for a while. They're not neat and tidy answers. Also, where are you taking it? Psalms are full of that stuff. Um, if you want to get deeper, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller is really good. Keller's stuff in general is the, one of the clearest sort of walk you into a place of understanding. Um, and he, he, he answers a lot of different kinds of questions in different books. Um, I tend to shy away from the more clearly apologetic books because they, because they don't tend to have a comprehensive like resting in the gospel of Jesus Christ 
it seems very laser focused on a particular issue. Those are a little, which just leads to more questions, frankly, in my, my experience. Um, biographies. Biographies are a great one. Uh, a Severe Mercy by Sheldon Van Auken is more memoir than it is biography, but it is one of the best for people who are in the midst of misery and trying to figure out how to trust God. Um, there's probably others. Those are the ones that come to mind off the top of my head. I mean, I'm certain there are others. There's a lot of great books out there. But um, one thing on those, handing people a resource and walking through a resource with people live in two different universes. If you have the time and the capacity to go through something with them, it's going to be profoundly more helpful to them than here, read this. So just, just a thought as well. I think we have time for one more, and you had your hand up. Yep. I'm thinking about a few students who are thinking of believing doubt. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking about your third point of don't hold students to a standard. Yeah. And how, like, some people believe they weren't called to walk alongside them. But I'm thinking of practicals of how to walk alongside those in the unbelieving doubt camp without burning bridges. Hmm. Because I have a lot of uh, girls who have made it clear that they don't believe and yeah. don't have gone from the I don't know to the I'm not interested. And how to respond to that disinterest and apathy without uh, them writing me off to be like, oh, she's just. She just wants to be yeah. So, I love people who just out and out don't believe. That's way easier than people who lie about believing or think they believe and don't. When you have to convince somebody that they don't believe and then convince them to believe, that's difficult. <laughs> if they're just like, I don't like Jesus, you're like, sweet. Uh, not a great place to be, but we are starting at the same place of understanding. And you, you, just, get to, you just get to be a... And an evangelist in that case. And I don't mean the, the like constant proclaimer, but the person who's like, my, my sole responsibility is to represent Jesus to this person. So, and that, that covers the whole scope of life. If all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, that's true authority over their volleyball games and their family life and their hobbies and the music they like and whatever else. So you get to engage their lives as a friend and, and proclaim Jesus that way. You have to proclaim. You can't just sort of hope that they catch it. Like, people don't catch Jesus like a cold. It's, this is, there's, a, there's, a, there's a reception and a, and a decision that happens. Um, but you have but you have the clear, you have the clarity of this is a non-believer and they need Jesus. So I get to be a missionary and an evangelist and a friend. That's, because Jesus was, Jesus was that too. Like, not, none of the disciples were believers. When Jesus called them, he did not call good Christian men and then teach them how to be apostles. He called unsaved, dumb, immature people and saved them. So we get to, we get to walk people w- into the presence of that Jesus who does that. So that, does that help? Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not like a step-by-step, but just kind of categorically, you... You have the freedom to treat them like an unbeliever, and that's really freeing. Because then you don't have to hold them to a Christian standard. If they're acting like a pagan, they are a pagan. And that means you don't hold them, you don't hold their feet to the fire. You, you get at the heart behind that. Why do you love that? Why are you tempted by that? Those kinds of things. Does that help? Okay. Um, we need to empty the room. I'm happy to hang out and talk with anybody else who has questions, but let me close this in prayer. I'm really appreciative of you guys and the questions and everything, but let me pray for us and then
we will dismiss. Father in heaven, I pray that the words that I have spoken would only be fruitful, that you would um, allow for disregarding of anything that was unhelpful, that you would allow, allow nothing to be a hang-up, that, that you would make Jesus more clearly beautiful to us as we minister to in, our, in our respective context, that you would help us to rest in the gospel, that you would help us to walk with Jesus, that you would help us to remember that all authority in heaven and on earth is his, and we serve from that place of confidence, even as we, we likely struggle with doubts and questions ourselves. Thank you for the work and the life and the ministry and the salvation of Jesus Christ and your mercy poured out through him on each of us in this room. Pour it out through us to the students and the ministries that we're part of. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, y'all. If you love the conversations we're having here on this podcast, then mark your calendars to join us this November in person at the Rooted 2023 conference in Nashville, Tennessee. We have an entire three-day track for parents, as well as a single-day ticket if you can only join us for Saturday. We'll have main session speakers like Trillian Newbell and Kelly Capick, as well as fantastic workshops from Sissy Goff and music led by Sandra McCracken, the Lipscomb University Gospel Choir, and more. Join us today at rootedministry.com slash conference or click the link in the show notes. Don't forget to sign up before September 15th before prices increase. Again, that's rootedministry.com slash conference.